Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. So the Bible indicates that the visible and the invisible are equally real. When I was a young kid, my parents read me stories, told me nursery rhymes and fairy tales at bedtime, most likely in an effort to enlarge my imagination, but probably also in a desperate attempt to get me to fall asleep. My parents read me stories like Little Red Riding Hood, Humpty Dumpty, The Three Little Pigs. I was always rooting for the big bad wolf because everybody deserves their bacon. These, these stories certainly enlarged my imagination, but they really never got me to fall asleep. It was through stories like these that I began to believe in things that I could not see. Now that that may sound like a strange statement to make, but I would bet that you believe in things that you can't see as well. By a show of hands, did any of you ever believe in the monster under your bed or in your closet when you were a kid? See, you never saw the monster, but you believed it to be there. Now, by a show of hands, do any of you still believe in the monster under your bed or in your closet? My actions would make you think that I still do. When I have to turn off my bedroom light and then make it to my bed without the monster getting me, I'm moving so fast I would qualify for the Olympics. It's insane. But the sheets and my comforter, they protect me from all monsters at all times. Everybody knows that to be true. The scripture we're going to be studying today is from Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 35. But before we jump into that scripture, I want to make a few statements regarding what scripture says about two things we can't see. The first thing I want to talk about is heaven. Now, I can't see heaven, at least not what what will be, but I believe heaven to be real. I don't think heaven to be real because of my imagination or simply from a hopeful desire or because someone wrote a book called Heaven is for Real. No, I believe heaven to be real because Jesus in Scripture say that heaven is real. I'm going off their authority. Heaven has a definite location, a transcending peace, and most importantly, heaven is where God dwells. The Apostle John wrote this in Revelation 21 regarding heaven. He said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will be with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I believe heaven to be real, an actual place. Now, I also believe hell to be real. Once again, I haven't conjured up hell in my imagination. That's not what I do in my free time. But I believe hell to be real because Jesus and Scripture say that hell is real. I'm going off their authority. In the New Testament, the Greek word for hell is the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna derives its name from the Hebrew valley, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. 
Now, the valley of Ben-Hinnom was a deep, narrow gorge outside of Jerusalem in which idolatrous Israelites would offer up child sacrifices to false gods. Now, King Josiah in the Old Testament, he desecrated this place of pagan worship. And once he had desecrated it, it became a trash dump for the people living in and around Jerusalem. The Israelite army would throw enemy soldiers, the body of enemy soldiers, into this valley to rot and to decay and to be picked apart by scavenging birds. This is a potent picture of hell. Other imagery revolving around hell is that hell is a place of blazing fire and deep darkness. In Matthew 13, Jesus said this, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and to all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe both heaven and hell are real. I believe in the visible and in the invisible from the authority of Jesus and God's word. Now, I'm not convinced that I've convinced you in that brief moment that now you believe that heaven and hell are real. Maybe some of you do, maybe some of you don't. But I'm convinced in my own mind, and I'm ready to jump into Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 35, after a word of prayer. So would you bow your head with me? God, I'm grateful to be here this morning. I'm grateful for the opportunity to study scripture. God, I ask that as we study scripture, you would allow our minds to know you more. God, you would soften our hearts this morning to receive your word. We are gathered here in the name of Jesus for his glory and to know you more. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? We're not sure who asked the question, but Jesus responds to the question, with a parable. Now, if you're not sure what a parable is, it's a fictional story that brings to light a real life truth. And we're going to walk through this parable this morning. So Jesus begins in his parable. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. Man, can you just sense the desperation of the people who are outside the house, who want to be inside of the house? When I was about seven or eight years old, I locked myself in the trunk of my dad's car. It was the summertime, and because my dad was a school teacher, he got to stay home with my brother and I. My mom was not a school teacher, so she was at work. I give you that context to tell you that the responsible parent was not present for the event. So... My dad, brother, and I are at home. I go out to the garage to play. I don't know why I was playing alone, but I figured out how to pop the trunk on my dad's car. Pretty impressive for a seven or eight-year-old. Then I figured how to get inside of the trunk and shut the trunk. Pretty dumb for a seven or eight-year-old. I shut myself in the trunk. And at first, I wasn't nervous. I didn't have claustrophobia at this point. I developed that fear because of this event. And I was just so, I thought it was the coolest thing that I was locked in this trunk because I was a weird kid. But then I recalled a conversation that I overheard my grandparents having a few weeks before in which they were discussing a kid who had died because he got locked in the trunk of a car. And when I recalled that conversation, I got real nervous. I got real panicked. I began to cry. And I was, in, I was so desperate to get out that I began to kick and to yell. And my dad never came. 
But my six-year-old brother came, and my six-year-old brother, he's always been smarter than me, so at six years old, he figured out how to pop the trunk as well. He, raced, he rescued me. He saved me. It was a good time. We go back inside. We told my dad the whole story, and all my dad said was, don't tell mom, okay? And so we never told mom the story. Jesus continues in his parable. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you. Or where you come from? Away from me, all you evildoers. And then he sends them away to what I believe is the hell we discussed earlier. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. And there, then there are others who will go to the heaven that we discussed earlier. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first who will be last. I want to revisit a few of those verses, starting in verse 25, in an effort to help explain what I think Jesus is teaching with this parable. So Luke 13, 25 says, Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. And then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from me, away from me, all you evildoers. The story might make you think that the owner of the house is ignoring people that he actually knows. But what I think Jesus is trying to teach us with this parable is that the people outside of the house have deceived themselves into thinking they know the owner of the house. A couple of Thanksgivings ago, Andrea and I pulled up to the Holderman family Thanksgiving at my Aunt Ruth's house. We always love going home, hanging out with family. And so we walk into the door, we're greeted by all our cousins and their young kids who are now running around at our parties, our, our family parties. And I was excited to be there. But then I saw my brother, the one who saved me when we were about six, seven, eight years old. He saved me. But now I was jealous. And I was jealous because my brother had brought a deck of cards to the Holderman family Thanksgiving and was performing card tricks for my grandma Clara. Now, I had always found myself to be grandma Clara's favorite, but at this particular family, family gathering, Chase now seemed to be grandma Clara's favorite. Once, I don't have a problem, okay? I just need everybody to know that. I don't have a jealousy problem. If you're thinking that Drake's jealous, no, okay? I'm not, all right? But I was a little upset that my grandma gave all the attention to Chase that day. It was a thanksgiving, but I didn't leave very thankful. No, I left with a mission on my mind. My mission was to become better than my brother Chase at card tricks. So we leave, we come back here to Missouri. I purchase magic trick kits and magic trick DVDs, and I stay up to the late hours of night learning all the card tricks in the book because the Holderman family Christmas is going to be a different story. So... I used the students here at Christ Church as my test subjects. Some of them thought it was cool. They started trying to do card tricks as well. Most of them were just embarrassed that they had a wannabe magician as their youth pastor. But I got so good at card tricks. And I walked in to the Holderman family Christmas with a confidence that no one should have just because they have a couple of card tricks up their sleeve. We go, my battle and I, it's like the battle of the wizards, man. We're doing card trick after card trick after card trick, trying to impress my grandma Clara. And we think she's impressed. She was probably just annoyed. Most families were saying Merry Christmas. We were saying pick a card, any card. It was a family Christmas for the books. Every card trick that we did was not magic. 
In fact, you know that every magician who claims to do a magic trick, it's not magic, it's sleight of hand. Magicians will tell you that the goal of sleight of hand is to try to get you to focus on what you're not supposed to be focused on. And now I think that the people outside of the house weren't focused on what they were supposed to be focused on. I think that they had been tricking themselves, deceiving themselves into thinking that they earned a spot inside of the house, that they earned a seat at that table, at that feast. What I want you to know is this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to know this. Your hands don't distract Jesus because he knows your heart. Your hands don't distract Jesus because he knows your heart. I think a lot of the times when we try to trick or persuade people, we're often just deceiving ourselves. And I think the people outside of the house had deceived themselves. Jesus isn't concerned about our hands first and foremost. No, he's concerned about our hearts. And so we need to give our hearts to Jesus because this is not about doing the right thing, the proximity to the right things. It's not about our actions. It's about our heart. What matters to God is our heart. In Psalm 139, King David prayed this prayer. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He said, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We do not earn our seat at the table. We do not earn our place inside of the house. Our place is earned for us through the blood of Jesus. And we give ourselves to Jesus. He cleanses and purifies our hearts when we give ourselves to him in faith. And Jesus wants every single one of us to come to a saving knowledge of him. I know this to be true because I've read the Bible. It's in there repeatedly. In fact, in the concluding verses of our scripture today, this is what happened, starting in verse 31. Luke writes, At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox that I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Then I want you to hear the lament in Jesus' voice. He's talking about Jerusalem, the city that he loves, but it's stubborn and it's unrepentant. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, Your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The question that was asked at the very beginning of our scripture that we're studying this morning is, Lord, will the saved be few? And I want to ask a new question. And the new question is this, will the saved be you? This question is not intended to sound doomsdayish. I just honestly want us to reflect. Have we given our hearts to Jesus? Are we trying to deceive Jesus with the works of our hands? Now, I believe 
that the good works done by our hands can be evidence of a heart given to Jesus, but that's not always the case. There can be good works done by a person who has not given their hearts to Jesus. What Jesus is teaching in this parable is that he is the only way. He is the narrow door. We must give ourselves to Jesus. I mean, we've been asking a lot of questions today around salvation, and I want to ask a couple more from Scripture. The first question I want to ask was asked on the day of Pentecost. Peter had just finished preaching a sermon about Jesus, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is its concluding line in Acts 2.36. He says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The hearers of Peter's sermons were the ones who put Jesus on the cross. By all accounts, the acts of their hands are condemning to hell. But praise God that he can turn the hardest heart into a heart after him. He can redeem any heart. And the people who are hearing the sermon, the people whose hands have condemned them to hell, they ask this question, a question a lot of us may be asking right now. The question that they ask is this, brothers, what shall we do? And so Peter responds in Acts 2.38 with this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That day, 3,000 people repented and were baptized into the name of Jesus. 14 chapters later, Acts chapter 16, we now find Paul and Silas. They're in prison. And they're in prison because they had cast a demon out of this slaved fortune teller. And the owner of this slave fortune teller was furious with them because his business is now out of business. And he has them stripped and beaten and thrown into the inner cell of the prison where they're shackled. And I want to pick up the rest of the story in Scripture, starting in Acts 16, 25 and following, because what happens is awesome. Acts chapter 16, verse 25, Luke wrote, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. If I was in prison, this would not be my response, praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked, and he asked a question that maybe some of us are asking right now. The question that he asked is this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his entire household were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them, He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Andrew and I have the opportunity to lead eighth grade D groups. In the student ministry, we have things called D groups. They stands for discipleship groups. And one of the girls in Andrea's D group is named Kate. Kate is hilarious and joyful. We love getting to be a part of Kate's life. 
Uh, she has a lot of funny stories that her parents tell us. When Kate was about four years old, Kate walked into the kitchen where her mom was cooking dinner, and she asked her mom, Mom, can I have some powdered donuts? And because her mom was cooking dinner, the answer was obviously no, but Kate did not like this answer. And so her mom had to leave uh, to do an errand, and she came back to the kitchen, and she saw Kate sitting there with white donut powder all over her face. And so Kate's mom asked the question, Kate, did you eat the powdered donuts even though I asked you not to? Kate's reply was simple, no. Kate's mom then showed her the stool that was pulled up next to the counter, the open cabinet, the lazily placed back bag of powdered donuts, and asked her again, Kate, did you eat the powdered donuts? Once again, Kate said, no. Then Kate's dad got involved in the interrogation. He got eye level with Kate. And he said, Kate, mommy and daddy don't know if you ate the powdered donuts. But God knows that you ate those donuts. To which Kate brilliantly replied, yeah, but God's not going to tell you. <laughs> I tell you that story to remind you of this. God knows your heart. Every single part of your being, God knows. Jesus cannot be distracted by your hands. He can't be fooled. He doesn't fall for any of our tricks. Sometimes we fall for our tricks. People outside of the house, I think that they had deceived themselves into thinking that they knew the owner of the house. If you haven't picked up on it yet, that owner is Jesus. Enter through the narrow door. The narrow door has a name. It's Jesus. Jesus is the only way to heaven. The only way. We can't earn it. We don't even deserve it. But Jesus paid for it so that we could walk through that door. So my question to all of us in this room is this. Will the saved be you? Honestly reflect on that. Will the saved be you? Have you walked through the narrow door? Have you given yourself to Jesus? Have you given yourself to Jesus in repentance and confession and belief and in baptism? Some of us have, but some of us haven't. And if, you're, if you have not walked through that door, then I want to offer you an invitation to go through the door. Mark has been offering this invitation for the past few weeks, and my invitation to you is this. At the four corners of the room, there are tables with lamps on them, and there will be ministers and elders present and ready to talk to you about confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, and being baptized into Jesus. It's an invitation that is open to every single one of us. I love this year at MOVE, our high school students go to Holland, Michigan every year. There was a boy who was baptized just a few weeks ago over there in that baptistry. His name was Tragen Parker. And I got, to walk, I got to watch Tragen walk with his entire D group down to this light where he got to respond, to step into the light of Jesus. Today, Maybe that day for you. God knows your heart. He is not distracted by your hands. So if you want to make a decision today, then I'm going to invite you after I'm done praying to go to one of the four corners of the room where there's tables and lamps and people just ready and willing to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. So that's my invitation to you this morning. I hope you'll accept it. God, I'm just grateful to be here. Grateful for the opportunity to gather together with people that I love, to study the word that I love, and to worship you 
the God that I love. God, I'm grateful for Jesus, how he opens the door for us. He made a way for us. He was the one who paid it all. So God, I ask that you would move in our hearts this morning, move in the hearts of the people who have not yet decided to follow your son, Jesus. Like you cut the hearers of Peter's sermon to the heart, Lord, cut us into our hearts this morning. What must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. Believe in the name of Jesus. Cut us to the heart this morning, God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.